2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. They were there with everybody else, right in the middle of the fray. Some of the women army helicopter pilots actually flew troops forward into Iraq. You had women who were definitely in hostile areas, even though they weren't officially in combat. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and this week we are between featured numbered episodes, so my occasional co-host Ken Katz is here to welcome back a previous guest of his to discuss a new book of hers. So take it away, primetime. On episode 134, retired Air Force Colonel Eileen Bjorkman joined us to discuss the role of Air Force flight test engineers. As well as having a distinguished career in the Air Force, both as an officer and more recently as a senior member of the civil service, Colonel Bjorkman is an accomplished author. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Eileen joins us to discuss her latest book, The Fly Girl's Revolt. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's great. I read your book and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think that the uh, listeners of Fighter Pilot Podcast would like to hear from you about it. So let's start off with the obvious first question to any author. What's the Fly Girls Revolt about? Well, I think the subtitle of the book pretty well sums it up. It's the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat, that the restriction on them was finally lifted in 1993. And it was about a 50-year battle starting back in World War II to get women into military cockpits and then allow them to fly in combat aircraft as well. Because initially they weren't allowed to fly in combat aircraft. And so in the 70s, even when they started training women to fly military aircraft again, the restriction was in place. So it was about another 20 years after they started training women that the restriction finally was lifted. So why'd you write the book? So I wrote the book primarily because I feel like there's been a lot written about the WASP from World War II. And I've seen a lot of recent memoirs and books written about younger women who've flown in combat in Iraq, you know, uh, OEF and OIF. (laughs) And they've had great experiences. And I 
feel like my generation has been neglected. It was, you know, the women of the 70s and 80s who really broke down that door, opened that door so the younger women could fly in, in combat, in combat aircraft and fly in combat situations. And I feel like those women haven't really gotten the credit that they deserve for that. And so that was my big reason was wanting to preserve that history. So why now? Why is this book important now? Well, I think part of the reason is because, first of all, my generation is not getting any younger. <laughs> and so it was time to, to capture that story. Uh, just as 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were a lot of efforts to capture the, the story of the wasp before they all got too old. And so that was one reason I think it's important now is to be able to recognize this generation. You know, well, they're still young enough to be able to appreciate and, that, and take advantage of that. But it's also important because we still have a ways to go with women in aviation. You know, women still make up a very small minority of pilots, somewhere it's around 5% of airline pilots, and it's about the same in the military services. We still have a ways to go. And I think you know, by highlighting the fact that women broke into this career field you know, 50 years ago, but are still such a small minority, that's one of the things that I try to emphasize when I talk to folks is there's still a ways to go. I'm not saying that we'll ever get to 50%, but 5% is pretty low. <laughs> now, your book covers events primarily in the 70s, 80s, 90s, although it talks about things before a little bit since, but, but things happen in a historical context. And you've mentioned the wasps several times. So let's sort of go back to the beginning about the wasps and how did women first get involved in military aviation in the United States? So it was during World War II, and the U.S. turned to women not just to fly airplanes to help out the war effort, but they actually brought women into the military officially as full members of the military for the first time during World War II. Now, there were nursing corps. There were nurses that were part of the military, but actual you know, military members who are regular members of the military, that didn't happen until World War II. Now, the WASP were a little bit different. They were, you know, like you said, the women Air Force service pilots, they were actually civilians. And the reason they were brought in as civilians was because the military didn't want to go back one more time to Congress and say, could you establish yet another group of women for us? It was just an expedience kind of thing. And the idea was that you would take women who already were experienced pilots some of them had more than 500. Later on, they got down you know, lower and lower numbers as the war went on, and they kind of ran out of the most experienced women in the country. But they were experienced pilots that were brought in as civilians, government civilians, and were trained to fly military aircraft. And they were trained on military aircraft. You know, They went through training with the Army, just like they were guys except they were civilians, like I said. And when they were finished with their training, then they would go ferry aircraft around the country. Some of them towed targets. One of them was even an experimental test pilot. So they did all sorts of jobs that didn't involve combat. And the idea was to free up male pilots for combat. So that was where things got started. Were the WASPs involved with naval aviation or only with the Army? They were only involved with Army. I haven't done a lot of research on this, but my understanding is there were some women who did some flying for the Navy, but they weren't pilots. Were there women involved on the ground side of the Army Air Forces in World War II? As... Oh, yes, very much so. In, in fact, a lot of the women who were in the Army were on the 
Army Air Force's side of things. I don't know the exact numbers, but they were very concentrated on the Army Air Force's side of things. In fact, one of my great aunts joined the Army, and she was actually a link simulator instructor up at Army Air Base in Michigan. Now, were the women in the Army Air Forces, were they only in the continental United States or were they also deployed overseas? Oh, no, some of them were overseas. In fact, Geraldine May, who went on to become the first director of the women in the Air Force after World War II, she spent quite a bit of time overseas. In view of the, I'll say, successful experiences of women in the Army Air Forces, both as members of the Army Air Forces in support roles, as well as civilian employees flying airplanes in in the WASPs, you would think that this would have been the start of great things for women in the newly independent Air Force that was sprung out of the Army in 1947. But I don't think it quite went that way. What was the role of women and perhaps of women flying in the early years of the independent U.S. Air Force? So there were a very small number of women when the Air Force first stood up. First of all, the WASP disbanded before World War II even finished. It was a good news story in a way because there was a lower attrition rate of male pilots overseas. And so they simply did not actually need as many pilots as they thought they would. And men were starting to complain about the WASP taking their jobs. And so the WASP were actually disbanded in December of 1944 before the war ended. Interestingly enough, they were all commissioned as reserve second lieutenants when the Air Force initially stood up. There were some problems, though. And first of all, they were not allowed to fly. If they wanted to go on active duty, they could be in some kind of a support role like Intel or admin, but they weren't allowed to fly. And actually, a lot of them, they found out as they started to process their paperwork and everything that a lot of them weren't even eligible because at that time, women were not allowed to be in the military if they had dependent children. And a lot of the WASP had kids. So they had different rules for them during World War II. And so a surprising number of them either had kids during World War II, you know, when they became a WASP, or, you know, since they had gotten out, you know, in the three years intervening, they had a kid. And, and so they weren't even eligible to be in, the, in as reservists anymore. But the women that were around, you know, whether they were former WASP or whether they were, you know, women that stayed or came back in, they were very limited in their roles. They were pretty much doing administrative kinds of jobs. You know, a few of them eventually trained like as air traffic controllers. And then at one point they said, oh, you can't be air traffic controllers anymore. I mean, it was just sort of a hodgepodge, what, you know, what they were allowed to do. And it changed from, you know, every time the chief staff of the Air Force changed, you know, there might be a shift of the winds and, well, you can't do that anymore. Now, as we go into the 1950s and 1960s, what kind of roles do we see for women as uniformed members of the Air Force? Yeah, so moving on into the 60s, things did start to open up just a little bit more. Women were allowed to serve over in Vietnam eventually. Uh, They were not allowed to serve in theater in Korea, except for nurses. And initially, that's what happened in Vietnam as well. But eventually they started allowing women to serve over in Vietnam. But again, the roles didn't change a whole lot through the 50s and 60s. It wasn't until the 70s that things really started to open up for women. Militaries reflect the societies that they come from. And in the 1970s, you started to see a significant 
change in the role of women in American society. And that was reflected in the military. So how did the role of women in the military change in the 1970s? Well, I think there were two really events that led to a big change. The first of those was getting rid of the draft. The uh, draft went away in 1972 and we went to the all volunteer force. And interestingly enough, women were actually not viewed as a solution to that problem. I thought that they would have been. I read a lot of studies during my research about, you know, how are we going to do the all-volunteer force? And I never found anything in there that said, oh, by the way, we could recruit a bunch more women. Because yeah. <laughs> at that point, the percentage, there had been a percentage restriction on women. They were restricted to 2% uh, until 1967 when some legislation was passed. So they could bring more women in. But nobody seemed to pose that as a, as a potential solution for you know, a shortfall of male candidates. But I think recruiters started to figure out pretty quickly that women are pretty qualified. In a lot of cases, they're more qualified than men, you know, coming in. They have better test scores. They have fewer disciplinary problems. And there were a lot of reasons to want to bring women in. And so I think there was just sort of a natural shift to start bringing women in. Now, it didn't open the floodgates, don't get me wrong, but there was a, a shift in that direction. The other thing that happened was the Equal Rights Amendment passed in uh, 1973. Oh, I, I think I have those backwards. I think the draft went away in 73 and Equal Rights Amendment passed in 72. But the ERA, it, it didn't get ratified right away. In fact, it's still not ratified, but it scared the service chiefs. And they thought, oh my goodness, you know, this thing's going to get ratified very quickly and we're going to have to start bringing more women in. You know, we're, you imagine the lawsuits, right? You know, you've got this Equal Rights Amendment. And, and so they voluntarily up the number of women that they were going to bring in each year. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then as far as the roles go, then the roles started changing as well. Because if you're going to start bringing more women in, it also made sense that you start opening more opportunities to them. And the Navy was particularly forward-leaning at that time because of Admiral Zumwalt. He was very forward-thinking. And he was the one that said, hey, let's start sending women to pilot training. We're getting up to women pilots in the military, and in order to become a pilot, you have to be a college graduate. The Army used warrant officer program aside, and there are typically three routes there. There's ROTC, there's officer training school, or, or its equivalent in the other services, and then there are the service academies. So were they opening up to women in the 1970s? So it took a while. ROTC opened up first in 1969. The Air Force actually led the, the pack on that one, opening ROTC. It's interesting that ROTC was actually not prohibited by law. Women were not prohibited by law from going to ROTC. That was just strictly policy. And so the Air Force opened that up in 1969 to women, first on a very small trial basis, and then pretty much opened it wide up after that. So. The service academies didn't open up until the first class was actually in 76. Congress passed the law in 75 to force the services to accept women at the military academies. And that was a, a battle because the military academies, they felt very strongly that, you know, we train combat officers and women can't be in combat. And so therefore they shouldn't go to the service academies. And But that was, it was pretty easy to pick apart those arguments because there were quite a few officers that graduated from all the academies who did not go into combat jobs. And the Air Force in particular had a fairly high percentage of graduates who did not go into combat jobs. So what was the experience and uh, general 
feelings. How well did this work out of having women in ROTC and, and women at the service academies? I never read too much about ROTC. The service academies, you know, initially, because, you know, I think with the ROTC, it kind of flew under the radar a little bit. You know, that wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. When you opened up the academies, you know, you had these women there and there was just reporters everywhere, you know, wanting to know how they were doing. I think that did not happen with ROTC. You know, there were a few people that went out and visited to see, hey, what's going on? You know, but you did not see that kind of, you know, on the evening news. Oh, my gosh, women are in ROTC. That, that didn't happen. So I think those women had a little bit easier time of it. So the academies, though, I think a lot of the problems were caused by the press just making a big deal out of the fact that they were there. You know, the women just wanted to keep their heads down and do a good job. And I think most of the men, you know, from what I can tell, interviewing women who went through at that time and reading, you know, my other research, yeah, I think for the most part, the men started to accept the women, the men in their class started to accept them when they saw that they could do the job and they wanted them to succeed too. So it was really some of the upperclassmen that had a problem with it because they didn't have women in their class and they were very angry in a lot of cases that, you know, oh, you're ruining the institution. I think the men in the class in 1980 though, you know, they wanted these women to succeed. They wanted them to be their teammates. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying things were perfect. Uh, you know, they certainly had to put up with a lot, even from some of their classmates. But I don't think it was, it wasn't like they were totally ostracized or anything like that. Also in the 1970s, we start seeing the first women become rated military pilots in the Navy, in the Air Force, and in the Army, although I don't believe in the Marine Corps. No, the Marines actually, because all their aircraft were combat aircraft, they did not have any women pilots until after the combat restriction was lifted. I didn't mention the Coast Guard, but I assume that the Coast Guard also had women Aviators yes, the they had started training women pilots in the 70s as well, and they never had any restrictions on their pilots at all because they don't have combat. So which service was first? The Navy was the first armed service. So I'd have to go back and check on the Coast Guard. I believe the Coast Guard did start after the Navy, So, but the Navy was the first armed service. What years did women start getting pilot's wings in the military? So 1973 was when the first women went through Navy training. And the first woman was winged in 1974 by the Navy. What about in the Air Force? That didn't happen until 77. So pretty much the same time the women entered the Air Force Academy, an experimental class of 10 women went to Williams Air Force Base and entered pilot training. And they all graduated in the summer of 77. Now, we know that there are a lot of people who fly besides pilots in the military. You have navigators, flight engineers, boom operators, air battle managers or weapons directors, flight test engineers. Were you starting to see women in those roles in the 1970s? Yes. So there were quite a few, I don't say quite a few. <laughs> there were a handful of women who started flying as flight test engineers. Uh, and Leslie Kenny was the, the first one to go through test pilot school there. And graduated in 75. And then there were a few other women that went through test pilot school before I did. I got there in 1985. And I think there'd been about five or six women that had gone through at that point. The air battle managers didn't come till later that they were restricted. You did have weapons controllers on the ground, but they could not fly as air battle managers. But that's a pipeline. The, the weapons controllers are pipeline into the air battle managers. So once they opened that up, some of the women who had been weapons controllers were able to go into the air battle managers. 
As far as uh, load masters, flight engineers, like on you know, C5s, that sort of thing, they started training them in the late 70s as well in the Air Force. Now, also at this time, this is not exactly the military, but you had the first women become NASA astronauts starting in, I think, 1978. I think that was when the first class was selected, yeah. Sally Ride went up in the early 80s. Women were, though, somewhat restricted in what they could do as military flyers. What were the restrictions? Were those law? Were they policy? What was the impact of those restrictions? Well, it was a little of both. The law said that women could not fly in an aircraft that engaged the enemy in combat. It didn't say they couldn't fly in a fighter. <laughs> because like I flew in the back seat, all us flight test engineers flew in the back seat of fighters. So, but we were flying test airplanes. You also had Navy, female Navy pilots who were flying tactical aircraft, but they were only flying them for the purpose of training men. Also, Navy women were not allowed to land on aircraft carriers because there was also part of the laws they passed said that women were not allowed to serve on combat ships and an aircraft carrier is a combat ship. So women were restricted from going out to the aircraft carriers, which meant that even if you were just like flying a helicopter out to drop off some supplies, you couldn't land the helicopter and drop off your supplies. And so the Navy women in particular were very restricted in what they could do. They could pretty much only do shore-based kinds of flying. Now they did open it up a little bit later. Uh, they did allow women to qualify, you know, carrier qualify on the training carrier. I think it's the Lexington. So, but the Navy women were extremely, extremely limited. Air Force women was not quite so bad because you know we have our you know transport aircraft and our tanker aircraft and aeromedical evacuation C9s. You know, women were flying pretty much all of the non-combat kinds of, of aircraft. And there were some limits though. There, uh, like airdrop was considered a combat maneuver, so a female C141 pilot would not be allowed to train to fly airdrop missions and would not be put on the schedule to fly airdrop missions. The one uh, woman I interviewed for the book, her commander thought he believed that aerial refueling was a combat maneuver. And so he would not send her to get trained for aerial refueling, which when you think about it is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> so, and part of the problem was just the interpretation. You know, a lot of this was individual commanders interpreting these rules you know, however they saw fit. And so there's one instance in the book where I talk about flying down into Grenada. You had women pilots on the East Coast flying 141s that went to Grenada and they didn't get taken off the schedule. And then you had women pilots on the West Coast at Norton Air Force Base. Their commander pulled them off the schedule and made male pilots come in and, and fly down to Grenada instead of them. So, so it's very disruptive and, like I said, very unevenly applied. It was really the biggest problem. It seems to me, and this is just personal speculation, that if we had gotten into a major war during this period, these rules would have been blown off, law or not, in about five seconds. Probably. so, Because, I mean, that's pretty much what happened during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, right? You know, <laughs> when, you, when you really need the women, you just, okay, whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. How were women aviators in particular? We know that there were a lot of women in the American military by that time. What was the role of uh, women aviators? So they did pretty much everything you know they were allowed to do within the law. 
you know, they were flying over on, on regular missions. Now they weren't flying combat aircraft, obviously, but they were flying into, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and, you know, the surrounding, you know, Turkey, you know, all the other places where we had forces and they were, you know, wearing their chem gear. And, uh, you know, there were times when they had to take shelter because a uh, scud alert uh, was coming, you know, they were on the ground and in Saudi Arabia and there were scuds in the air and they would have to go take, take shelter. And, they were there with everybody else. It's not like they just went to Europe and then turned around and went back. I mean, they were right in the middle of the fray. And there were um, some of the women army uh, helicopter pilots actually flew into Iraq. They moved troops forward into Iraq as they made that final push, the you know 100 hours of the ground war that they had. So you had women who were definitely in hostile areas, even though they weren't officially in combat. What were the arguments, the actual arguments for combat exclusion? And do you think that any of them had any merit at all? So the, you know, I think the original arguments were just, well, we don't want women in combat. You know, that was, that was all there was to it. And then, you know, gradually that started to erode though, because you know, they started to realize that, you know, women can fly airplanes just as well as men can. And uh, there's a common statement, you know, the aircraft doesn't know what gender the pilot is. And, you know, and then there was the, well, you know, they can't really fly the high performance airplanes. Well, there were plenty of women flying T-38s, uh, you know, became instructor pilots. And, and then, uh, you know, you had women test pilots who were flying high performance airplanes. You had flight test engineers flying high performance airplanes. So that argument went away. And, and if, in some ways, women are better suited to high performance airplanes. Women have lower centers of gravity and they, in many cases, have uh, less problems pulling Gs. So they're smaller, they fit in the cockpits better, you know, of, of fighter airplanes. So there's a lot of advantages actually to being a woman in a, in a high performance aircraft or a combat aircraft. But the biggest thing that it came down to in the, at the end was that there was a belief that women would be disruptive in a combat squadron, that it would hurt unit morale and unit cohesion. That was really the last remaining argument that they had. But even that was not a valid argument because women had been flying just fine in non-combat squadrons for at that point, you know, 20 years. And so there was very little doubt that women could do the job and could be a part of the team uh, by that point. And so eventually that all finally got overcome by events. So. Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork, or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, AllVeteran.com is here to help. AllVeteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.AllVeteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. I was thinking about that question when I was, you know, writing it out for you. And here's my thought on that. First of all, I think that on net, 
it clearly is beneficial to the United States to have uh, women in military aviation. The primary reason is simply that uh, women as individuals bring capabilities, you know, as, as human beings who can do things, we want to get people who can do things in. I, I think the second thing is, is that a military has to represent, I shouldn't say has to, but should represent the values of its society. And in the values of contemporary American society mean that we give equal opportunity to both men and women. But I think there is a little argument as follows, and I'll base it on the fact that I lived in a fraternity in college, an all-male fraternity. The dynamics of groups of men, particularly young men, are altered when there are women around, both for better and for worse. And I think evolutionary, those, the ways that groups of young men interact has something probably back to, you know, when we were uh, crawling around the uh, savannah and you had bands of warriors. And I think that there is, on the one hand, Groups of young men without women around can be exceptionally obnoxious and unruly, and that's not a good thing. And I think that in that way, having, say, a squadron, let's call it a squadron, with women in it is a beneficial thing. On the other hand, there is a certain degree of male bonding that happens. And when you introduce women, there sometimes can be competition over who is dating somebody or something like that. And it can be somewhat disruptive. So I think that there is some merit just based on my personal experience living in a all-male living group. But I think that those things, there's great value to having women because women bring talents to the military. And uh, there's an issue of just being consistent with American values. But I think there is some merit to the bonding argument. So I would say people bond. Uh, <laughs> and, and yes, there are certainly times when men want to go off and be by themselves as a group. And there are times when women want to go off and be by themselves as a group. But in general, people bond. And and some of the things that you talk about, whether you have women in the squadron or there are women available through other means, you're going to have some of those kinds of things happening. So in fact, one of the reasons there back in, I, I didn't put any of this in the book, but during my research, there were actually general officers in uh, back in the Civil War that wanted to somehow organize the women who followed the camps around. Uh, <laughs> you had, you know, the soldiers would, you know, move from camp to camp as they campaigned. And there were women, there were groups of women that followed them around. And, and some of them really were there just to, you know, kind of nurse and things like that. But there others that were doing, I'll put in quotes, you know, comfort, right? You know, and there were people who thought that, you know, we really should organize these women. Maybe we should even put them into some kind of military organization because then we can control them. <laughs> and, and, you know, when they're just civilians, you know, we really have very little control over what they do. So I think regardless of whether women are in the military or out of the military, you're going to have some of those kinds of issues. Um, because women want to help, whether they're in the military or not, and they will find a way to be there. And, and it's probably more disruptive to have women not in the military, because like I said, you can't really control them when they're just these civilians uh, out there rabble rousing and you know, doing whatever they want to do. So Now let's get personal for a minute, because one of the fun things about your book is that you're a character in your book. 
A little bit, yes. Yeah, you're, this is essentially the military that you were a member of, and you were flying military aircraft during this period. So tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were doing this and how it looked like from the inside. So I wanted to get into flight testing because I wanted to fly. Uh, my eyes weren't good enough to go to pilot training. And I also realized that, hey, if I can get into flight testing as a you know, flight test engineer, I can fly in F-4s and F-16s, and I can't do that, you know, if I'm a pilot or a navigator. So in some ways, it, it worked out better. You know, it certainly was a, a nice consolation prize. But, I, you know, I was mostly interested in the mission. But, you know, just like men, I was interested in also having some fun and, and flying in the, you know, the latest and, and greatest aircraft. And I was lucky enough to get to do that. It was as far as my own experience, uh, you know, being one of only a handful of women, sometimes the only woman in the room uh, during that time period, there were, I actually had very few problems. You know, I think for the most part, men accepted me because in flight testing anyway, they're mostly interested in your brain and what you can bring to the table. <laughs> and they're not, you know, they're, they're not thinking about, oh, you're a woman, you know, you're not very good or you can't be very good or you can't do this. Or you can't do that. Now, I certainly did run into sexism at times. Don't get me wrong. But I, I never felt like I was in a hostile atmosphere the whole time I was flying. I actually the, the first time I encountered a hostile atmosphere was actually after I had started flying and I was in a desk job. That's interesting. I mean, I was out at Edwards at basically the same years, some of the years that you were out there. And I don't recall anyone ever acting like a jerk towards a woman or uh, because they were a woman or comments, you know, when out, when a woman was out of earshot or something like that. I, it seemed like a pretty respectful professional environment, at least in my limited experience. You know, and I think some of that, you know, like I said, some of that I think was because of the you know, it's not this macho fighter pilot environment so much as, you know, everybody's interested in getting the test done. And, you know, so you're not. And, and also, I think it's just that the people at Edwards tend to be the officers anyway, tend to be a little bit older. I think that helps. You know, you don't have there are some lieutenants at Edwards. I think you were a lieutenant at Edwards. But, but you know, the pilots, for the most part, are there's their senior captains or young majors by the time they get through test pilot school. And even the engineers are a little older. You know, for the most part, you're at least a young captain. Occasionally, a first lieutenant will graduate. But you know, everybody's just a little bit older. And, and that few years makes a huge difference when you're young. The difference between 45 and 50 isn't much, but the difference between 22 and 27 is a lot. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think that's a really good insight, the impact of age. Now, there was a major and not very pleasant incident that has since been called tailhook that seemed to have a big influence on the changing role of women in military aviation. Can you talk about tailhook and what it was and what was the impact of it? Yeah, so so it's interesting because tailhook was something that even I knew about as it was going on, you know, prior to the, the big incident in 1991. You know, I'd always heard about it. I mean, because it was just in Vegas, you know, and Edward's only three hours from Vegas, and you know, I occasionally hear people talk about, oh yeah, we're gonna go up to tailhook, you know, <laughs> and I and there was a Navy guy in my test pilot school class, and of course he told us all about tailhook. So it was pretty well known that it was kind of a wild place, and and uh, there was one time a couple of my classmates were going to be going up there. And I said, can I go? And they're like, no, no way. You know, it's horrible. <laughs> you know? And so I said, well, okay. And, and um, so I'll be honest, when the, all the articles first started coming out about what happened, I wasn't surprised. 
<laughs> it was like, you know, I was kind of like, what took so long? You know, this has been going on for quite some time, and it finally caught up with them. I mean, the report was pretty bad, the report that came out in 1993. I mean, it was very much a misogynistic environment. You know, men were very anti-women. And I think the women in the Navy got treated a lot worse than the women in the Air Force did, you know, from everything that I can tell. You know, again, there was this attitude that, I mean, there were guys wearing T-shirts at tail hook that said women are property on them. I mean, that's how bad things were, you know, and they were groping them and gauntlets. I mean, there was just many sexual assaults uh, documented in 1991 at, at the event in 1991. And those are just the ones that were documented. Like I said, there were probably ones that happened that didn't get reported or they didn't have enough evidence to, you know, to document them. So it was, it was pretty bad. I, I see it as a failure of leadership. There's no way the leadership knew that wasn't going on. It had been going on for years and it got worse and worse and worse. And yet the leadership allowed it to continue and they did nothing about it. And then they finally got caught when somebody decided to complain and a lot of senior leadership in the Navy got fired or resigned. And then the report came out in 93, right before they opened combat to women. And there's some speculation actually that it was it, the door was going to open anyway, but there's some speculation that the timing of the report maybe got the door open a little sooner than maybe bureaucracy would have liked it to. Because there was some thinking that if we let women go into combat, then maybe we can kind of not have so much attention paid to this report. So, so what was the actual mechanics of the revocation of the combat exclusion? Yes. So after Desert Storm, after everybody realized that, oh, women are actually in combat already. Yeah, there was, there was, um, you know, a push to remove the combat exclusion, and the timing was perfect. I mean, if Desert Storm had happened, you know, had ended in August, you know, I don't know that it would have happened as quickly as it did. But Desert Storm ended the end of February, just as the new defense, you know, National Defense Authorization Act was, it was starting to be debated in the House, you know, and then in the Senate, and so the timing was perfect, and you had Pat Schroeder and Beverly Byron, who both introduced bills into the NDAA to repeal the combat exclusion laws. So it was pretty simple, you know, just repeal them. And the bill sailed through the house. <laughs> you know, nobody was really paying attention and it just sailed through the house. And then all of a sudden people kind of woke up, people who didn't want women in combat woke up and they started pushing back and started, you know, lobbying the Senate to not pass the bill and to do something else. And anyway, long story short, um, the women fought back. <laughs> the, the women aviators fought back. They uh, descended on Washington with some of their folks that, you know, supported them. And they went around and talked to all of the, the senators, their staffers. Now the women were, women aviators were wearing their uniforms, so they were not allowed to actually lobby. They were there to educate and the people who were supporting them were there to, to do the actual lobbying. So the Senate did finally pass the bill. It wasn't the original bill. It, there was a little bit of a different procedure that they used in the Senate to get the, law, the laws repealed, but they did get them repealed, but then they also inserted language that said, we're gonna do this presidential commission that's gonna study the role of women in the military and until we finish that, the services don't have to actually start opening combat aircraft to women. So that commission met. And then in November of 92, they recommended that combat aircraft remain closed to women. But Bill Clinton 
got elected also, I think the next day <laughs> after they made the recommendation. And one of his campaign pledges had been to allow women into combat aircraft. So um, it took a little bit longer, you know, once he you know, got, you know, his administration got into place in January and it still took a few months. But, uh, but on April 28th, 1993, Les Aspen announced that he was allowing women into combat cockpits. So the law was removed almost two years earlier but because of the commission and politics, the services didn't actually act on the law and change the policy until April of 93. And how quickly did implementation happen? In other well, words- that happened really fast. So yeah, once they, once they opened it up and, and the Air Force, General McPeak, who had been one of the biggest opponents of opening combat aircraft to women, once he knew that they were going to make it happen, he was determined to be the first out the gate. And so at that same conference where Les Aspen announced that they were opening combat aircraft to women, he introduced the first three women fighter pilots for the Air Force. And that was Jeannie Flynn, now Jeannie Levitt, Martha McSally, and Sharon Presler. Now, Jeannie Flynn became a general officer, didn't she? Yes, she's a two-star now. She's the chief of safety at the Air Force, at the Pentagon. And Martha McSally became a Congress. Yes, she was in Congress for a while. So yeah, she retired as a colonel. She was an A-10 pilot. Yeah. And the third person, I don't recall hearing her name before. Yeah, she was an F-16 pilot. Yeah, she kind of flew under the radar for a long time. She's on the speaking circuit and stuff now, and she retired as a colonel also. For whatever reason, she never quite got the attention that the other two did. And there were also women going into bombers and U-2s and... Well, that happened a little later, the bombers. Yeah, that actually took a couple of years before a woman went into a bomber. The U-2 had actually opened up before. It was not a combat aircraft. So it had opened up, I think, in 89. And by the early 90s, they had at least one woman flying U-2s. Yeah. Somehow it seems to me that the definition of combat was you can be shot at, you just can't shoot back. Right, right. So yes, and that was something that women said a lot was, yeah, you you know you're flying a combat aircraft if you can shoot back. (laughs) So looking back over the past 30 years, where are we with regard to women in military aviation? Sort of a retrospective. Yeah, so I I mentioned that earlier, that, that, that women are still a very small minority in aviation, both commercial and military. And women make up about 20% of the Air Force. You'd expect that 20% of the pilots, roughly, you know, we don't have to have exact numbers here, but you'd expect that roughly 20% of the pilots in the Air Force would be women. And that's not the case. It's more like five or 6%. And that number has not changed substantially, you know, over the past umpteen years. So I think it's hard for women to get into aviation I think a lot of women just don't see it as a viable career path. I think some of it's women aren't introduced to aviation at an early age, so they don't really see it. They also, you know, there's that old quote about, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And women just don't see it as a, as a viable career path, I think, in a lot of cases. Because they look and they see that, oh, yeah, there's like a few women, but I don't want to be the only woman in my squadron. You know, there are women that, that are turned off by that. And so it's a little bit of a, chicken and an egg thing, right? You know, we can't get, you know, there's not very many women in in aviation and we can't get more women in aviation because there's not any women in aviation. So, you know, they don't have those role models and those those people to look up to. And I know a lot of people push back on that and they say, oh, I don't think that's true. But, you know, I recently read an article about forensic science 
And it used to be a very small number of women in forensic science. And there's a show on TV, uh, CSI, which I've never actually seen myself, but it's all about uh, forensic science. And there are a lot of women on that show. And little girls growing up for the last, you know, I don't know how long that show's been on, but I know it's been on for a while. You know, little girls and teenagers have been watching that show and they see those role models. And more than half of the students studying in forensic science now are women. You know, so it really does make a difference to, to see people that look like you. They become a role model and they make you aspire to do those kinds of things. That's interesting. I, in my mind, I haven't made up why, and I'll just give you some personal anecdotes here. If I look at the company where I work, it used to be there were almost no women in aerospace engineering, not that long ago. Let's say 40 years ago, there were almost none. And now our company would fall apart without you know, the women who are engineers and program managers and things like that. So I don't know what percentage it is because I don't just sit around and count up percentages of men and women, but it's huge. I don't know whether it's a third or a half or something like that, but it's major. On the other hand, I look around my flying club, for example, and I see very few women. I look at my library of books, which is basically aircraft and military history. And if you take out the section of the shelf where the author's first name is Eileen, there are very few books on aircraft that are written by women. And it's not like there's a lot of, as you well know, by writing books, a lot of power, prestige, and money from writing books. People do it because they're interested. So I wonder what is the combination of sort of innate interests, social pressures, potential discrimination, examples or lack thereof, and how do those things all fit together? And I, in my mind, I guess I, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the problem, right, is that it is all of those things, and we don't know what the major influence is. I mean, why did I choose to become an engineer, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when there were very few women? I mean, I, I didn't have any role models, women engineers. I was just good at math and science in high school, and my dad was an engineer in addition to being a pilot, and I guess I'll major in engineering, you know, <laughs> you know, and by the time I went to college, you know, there were, I was often the only young woman or, you know, one of a handful of young women in my classes, but I was kind of used to that by then. I mean, as we went through high school, you know, and, and again, this is, you know, a lot of girls just kind of fell by the wayside in terms of math and science. And, and I think in a lot of cases, my generation, I mean, I was told more than once that I couldn't do math and science because I was a girl and, you know, it's just, you know, my parents never said that, but there were plenty of people out there that sent me messages that said, you, you know, you should be, you should be majoring in English or something. You know, you should be a teacher. You know? So, yeah. So I think, you know, that now, now why was I able to overcome that? I, I'm not sure, but I think there were a lot of girls in my generation that felt like, you know, maybe they got a bad grade on an algebra test once and they were like, yeah, they're right. I can't do math. I'm going to go do something else. You know, a boy would have been encouraged. Oh, it's just one bad test. You know, a girl's like, oh, look, see, girls can't do math. It's interesting. You're a couple of years ahead of me. And actually, I think there was a big change between your age group and my age group, because the number of women in engineering and in aviation increased. I mean, it certainly wasn't 50-50, but I would say it may have doubled between your year group and my year group, which isn't that many years difference. Well, yeah, I think some of it is Title IX, actually. Now, Title IX was in the 70s, obviously, but it takes a while for that to penetrate, if you will, right? I mean, when I was in junior high and high school, there were very few sports for women, for girls. 
I wanted to run track. There was no track team for girls. There were some sports like, I think, swimming and golf and tennis, which were not sports that I played. (laughs) I guess those were considered acceptable sports for girls. You know, we certainly didn't have basketball or or anything like that, at least where I went to high school. Now, I know that there were some parts of the country where girls did have that even before Title IX, but Title IX, I think, made a huge difference for girls. When schools were forced to start having sports teams for girls and girls started playing more sports, I mean, you know what comes from playing sports. You know, you you learn to work as a team. It builds confidence. You know, there's just all kinds of great side effects that come from being able to play sports. And, and I think that's some of what you saw happen in in just a few years. I mean, I, I was you know really surprised, like you said, just women not that much younger than me who had the opportunity to play sports in high school, you know, and then took that into, say, the Air Force Academy or something. I mean, it really... I think that alone has made a huge difference for women in society altogether. Do you have any final thoughts on the subject? I think I've pretty much talked about everything. The, uh, I guess the one thing I would just like to footstomp is, you know, and you mentioned it, it earlier, is the whole reason for opening up things to women and to not just for women, you know, just casting a wide net. If we're going to have a strong military and a strong country, we have to use the resources of everybody. And that means women, that means people of color, that means immigrants, you know, it means everybody. And if we're gonna not use all of those talents, if we're gonna leave those talents on the floor, we're never gonna be strong as a country. And if we're not strong as a country, we won't have a strong military. And so it's really, it's not so much about equality, although equality is very important, It's about using all the talents that we have in this country and not leaving anything on the table. Now, on a personal note, you sent me a copy of the book and uh, I read it on a flight out to uh, Phoenix for business. And I think it's an outstanding book. I I strongly recommend it. It's very well written and it's a fascinating topic. So how can listeners buy this book, The Fly Girls Revolt? So it's available. It's in some bookstores. Uh, I think there's quite a few Barnes and Noble bookstores that are carrying it. If you want to go, you know, get a hard copy, the, uh, you know, walk into the store and get a copy. Um, it's available online through yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, your favorite independent bookstores. So there's uh, quite a few outlets that are carrying it. So. We're recording this episode on July 17th, and later this week, both you and I are headed to the greatest event in the solar system, which is, of course, Oshkosh. So you're going to be doing a presentation and book signing there, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing the same thing for my book on the B1. And I look forward with meeting up with you there. That's great. And I do have one more plug to make for Oshkosh. So in addition to my presentation on the book, which is going to be on Thursday, Wednesday is always a women venture at Oshkosh where they celebrate women in aviation. And Wednesday evening at the Theater in the Woods, I'm going to be moderating a panel, women aviators in the military. So specifically women combat aviators because we're celebrating 30 years since combat aviation opened women. So it's uh, 6.30 if anybody wants to come out for that as well. I'll be there. I look forward to seeing you in person in a week. And uh, thanks again for joining us on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Okay, thanks again for having me. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. 
Thanks for listening.